stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. It's just after half past one. And we're just about to jump into something quite exciting. We'll be speaking to author, Ruth First Scholar, feminist and editor of Vanguard magazine, someone we've been trying to get on the show for a while. Panashi Chigumazi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've been trying this for a while, so I'm very excited that it's finally time to get going with this. Yay. <laughs> All right, Panache, firstly, I just want to talk a bit about your new book, Sweet Medicine. Yeah. Now, I know you mostly, or a lot of people do know you for your writing at Vanguard, which is, which is sort of a magazine you run, which is, mostly, which is a lot of polit- political, social commentary. So it comes to quite a surprise that you, you wrote a fiction book. How did that come about? Uh, well, it's not surprising to me um, because <laughs> it's been a while that I've been working on this. Um, I, I probably started this, it started as a short story when I was on the trick, so that's about, uh, let me not reveal my age, but about five, six years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it started as that, and it sounds not really something I took seriously because, I mean, I studied accounting. Um, but somewhere along the line, I, I went back to it and I said, you know, maybe this can be something that I actually develop into a novel. Um, yeah, and that's literally how it began. And I was interested, even as I was studying to be an accountant, I was interested in writing fiction long before I was interested in writing um, any nonfiction like I do with Vanguard. Um, and so the process is sort of something, I don't know if I want to call it simultaneous, but I, I think they feed into each other. Although um, I do think that, that my fiction is, is obviously quite different from, from my nonfiction. Um, and as you know as well, um, with, 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 uh, when you have a manuscript, it's not that as soon as you finish writing, um, you know, every, man, any, every publisher is sort of waiting to, to snap you up unless you're very famous uh, when you have a track record. So it took me a while to finally find a publisher. Um, so I think I probably finished the book about maybe last year. So this is long before many of the things that people now know me for. So this has been in the pipeline for quite a bit. I mean, you, you mentioned, I'm curious about, you talk about your process, and you said it's been, you know, five, six years in the making, which is quite a while. And you mentioned in your acknowledgements that writing this makes you feel naked in some sense. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, what, what I mean by naked is that I, I find that writing nonfiction and, and publishing nonfiction I find it to be easier than, you know, putting out your, your fiction in the world. I think what I often find with a lot of our writers is people feel very shy and feel like, you know, they, they feel um, naked when, when you have your writing out for, your, you know, your thoughts out there for people to consume and to critique and all of that. Um, and I find that fiction for me is more scary because I'm letting you into my imagination. So, um, whereas with my nonfiction, I'm, I'm really just representing the facts and making an argument. This is something a little bit more intimate. You're, you're finding out what, what I'm thinking about. And, you know, so that is a little bit more scary because there's a lot less objective and, you know, there's a lot, a lot more subjectivity in whether people will like um, what I'm presenting or not. I'm, no, I, I can definitely imagine that. But I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned now that you had finalized the book before uh, you became, shall we say, famous for <laughs> for other things. Yeah, the the, the Ruth First Fellowship and the speech 
and some of your work with the feminist Stockville and so on. So were you, were you at some point tempted maybe to just park this project and then just maybe stick to that stuff for a while? Did you ever regret basically starting the process of the fiction book while this other stuff happened? Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult because I, I think for me, I, I often had the, the, the question of whether I am a jack of all trades or I, and a master of none. So you feel the guilt because, you know, the people who have known since they were a child or very single-minded about the fact that they want to be a doctor, they want to be an engineer, and, you know, I just have, and I continue to have a, a lot of interest, um, and I use a lot of different mediums to do what I'm interested in doing. Um, predominantly, it's all about sort of writing and communication, um, about you know, some of the things I'm thinking about, what it means to be young. Um, and black and a woman, um, those are usually the things I'm, I'm interested in, in, in writing about. So um, it, they really do all feed into each other at some way or another, uh, in some way or another. And I think it actually took me, it took me talking to a mentor who um, could sense my, my unease and uh, wanting to almost pin myself down to just one box um, and feel like, well, you know, some of us um, have portfolio lives and, and, and they all feed into each other. They might enrich each other. So don't feel like you need to just do one thing at a time or only confine yourself to one thing. So I think that's pretty much what I've, what I've been following and I hope it will work. I mean, I, I finally managed to get a copy of the book and read it through and I think we can definitely say that it, that it worked and congratulations, man. I really, I really, Yay. really enjoyed it. You read the whole thing? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, for everybody listening in who hasn't had that luxury, tell us a bit, what, tell us, what can we expect? What is the book about? So the very, very short uh, description of the book is about, it's about Sissi, a young woman who um, speaks economic and romantic security um, through otherworldly means, what I would call that, um, and that's whether it's Christianity or traditional belief systems. Um, and this is in the period of uh, 2008 in Zimbabwe, so that's for many would know that's sort of the period where uh, it was, uh, the, the, I think, the, the, the height of sort of the economic decline or the economic growth. Um, and essentially, TC is a young woman um, who... Um, She's grown up with, with, with very many moral certainties and, and ideas about progress and what kind of life she will have. Grown up in a household, which is very typically Zimbabwean in terms of um, uh, if getting education and being a hard worker. Um, and that is supposed to guarantee her a particular kind of life. And growing up as a Christian, a Catholic woman, um, she, she's got particular ideals of what kind of life she will have as a married woman with children and that kind of thing. Um, but she finds herself, uh, when things turn around in the economy, someone who's just graduated from school um, and realizes that things aren't as they used to be and you have to make different kinds of choices in order to survive. Um, and I guess, you know, it ends up being, for me, what, what I would describe it as a story about compromise and, and agency and just, you know, religion as well um, and figuring out how you're going to, to deal with the changes um, around you. I mean, I was I was particularly what's the word? I was surprised. I think that it was that it was set in Zimbabwe. I think, and and I remember uh, reading sort of part of your your bio right at the back, and it says yeah. you're born uh, at a certain maternity ward in Harare, a birthplace yeah. you share with millions of Zimbabweans, but something you still feel is auspicious. So, wh- why is that something that you choose to affirm in that way? Um, I, I mean, it was it was really just something I always put in whenever you'd have to write, you know, family trees or whatever personal history is for. Um, 
I would always remember how in my in my birth certificate or, or uh, I, it would say uh, birthplace Mbuyanehanda Maternity Ward in um, which is part of our biggest uh, public hospital in Zimbabwe, which is Parirenyatwa Hospital. Um, and for many of you who might not know, Mbuyanehanda is the spirit medium or the spiritual leader of uh, Zimbabwe's first um, Chimurenga, which is our first rebellion against the settlers, um, which is the, was the British. Company of South Africa, the British South Africa Company uh, at the time in the late 1800s. Um, and when she died, she was hung for killing the native or supposedly ordering the death of uh, the native commissioner. And she said uh, her spirit or her bones will rise again. And that's a lot of, uh, you know, that's really stuck in the minds of Zimbabweans. A lot of things that are named after Mbuya Nehanda. There's Nehanda Radio, Nehanda, a lot of things. Um, so I just, I just identify with her or I, I, I identified with the mythology of her as a strong mm. and sort of powerful woman, particularly in resistance, um, and someone who was not a victim, even as she was sentenced um, to, to, to be killed. Um, and I think that's really just why I was this, this is a, a thing I did because I killed. Um, <laughs> that's all. I thought I chased the limit of, of what I could write as an author bio. Um, but I do think I'm, I'm actually interested. I was doing research on her yesterday. I'm actually interested in perhaps doing something about her in the future. So, yeah. Okay, that's, that, that's one to watch. I hope that's an exclusive. You heard it here first. <laughs> the first time I mentioned it. There we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Um, okay, I mean, that that sounds pretty, pretty cool. And there it is, not only from the stuff you would do in school and so on, but on the back of your first book, right? So that's something. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'd be very interested in hearing what your thoughts were about, about the actual book, what kind of things you picked up. I'm, I'm interviewing you now as a reader of, <laughs> of the book. Now Kings, they have to prove that you actually read it. This is the bit. This is the, this is the yeah, bit. Yeah, I want to prove that you read it. When I, I talk about non-existent chapters, <laughs> chapter 87. <laughs> no, um, I think I was... I was curious about how, I mean, of course I come into it with a lot of baggage because, uh, cause I know you with some of your work, you know, previously with the feminist Stockville and through Vanguard. So I, I, I know your very sort of, uh, feminist approach to your writing and your social commentary. So I was curious how that might affect how you'd want to portray women in this book. So the central character, as you mentioned, Titi is a young woman and we get a lot of access to her motivations for making the compromises she has to and, and her best friend and, and her mother as well. And I'm curious, did your feminist side um, put any pressure on how you wanted to portray or not portray women as you wrote this? Well, I think um, a lot of people wouldn't know that, I mean, it was only recently that I began to identify as a feminist, mm. a black feminist specifically. Um, so, and for many years, I specifically was interested in black consciousness and pan-Africanism. So we know that the limitations of those theories is that it particularly conceptualizes a black heterosexual man, um, and it doesn't speak of any sort of gender liberation. And I was one of those who subscribed to the idea that, you know, we will talk about liberation or gender after the liberation. So when I started the book, ironically, it was about a woman, but really it's not because I had any sort of um, moral of the story sort of type of thing that I wanted you to come away with it. Um, it really actually started because I was interested in the story about religion and traditional systems, belief systems and that sort of thing. Um, and the women sort of were just a vehicle for that at the time. Um, and I finished last year when I guess I just started really engaging a little bit with feminism so, and I mean, of course, I did some edits this year, but I think um, 
you know, it be, I think it will become feminist simply in saying that I'm speaking of women um, it, with nuance um, and mm-hmm. not only them um, as agents of patriarchy, but, you know, people who have some sort of agency. I mean, what is interesting is that, for those of you who've read the book, I had one publisher tell me that um, they thought the manuscript was great, but they didn't like the ending. Um, it wasn't feminist enough. Um, and for me, that was an interesting thing to say because it then raises the question of which women are worthy of being written about. Um, mm. Is it that only a woman who fits the you know a mold of a feminist archetype? So it should be the first woman president. It should be the woman who left her husband who was abusing her and did X Y Z. Is the only type of person who's with, uh, you know worthy of being written about within that feminist archive? And I and I refute that, and I think that it's important that we're interested in all women. Um, and you know, some will dispute what her what how to how to view her her, um, her actions. Um, but I think for me, uh, if there's any feminism, that it wasn't necessarily something deliberate. But mm-hmm. I, I will be very glad to know that um, if, if it was something that there were women who were shown with nuance and we've seen them in different um, contexts, then that's what I was aiming um, to do more, more than anything else. And that definitely came across. I mean, together with the the other thing which you've mentioned, which is this idea of I think you called it otherworldly means, which I love. Yeah. I think that's just a lovely euphemism because I just feel like it could mean anything. But yeah. Yeah, this sort of interplay between sort of traditional Christian religion, which as you've mentioned is a very sort of traditional Zimbabwean upbringing, it's quite common, and how that interplays with with traditional sort of African customs, and is that and how that especially hmm, what am I trying to say? So basically. Um, stepping away from the book, the idea of religion and how especially how it dictates, um, can often dictate women's lives is, is something I, yeah. I believe that's been written about quite widely and also through Vanguard. And, and that's something now you explore in how this woman is, is in a tight spot and is sort of trying to explore, um, the traditional African custom and has come up in a Christian background. So is that, is that sort of, confusing melting pot of beliefs is that something you've been meaning to explore or is that something you think about often where did where did that theme sort of emerge from um you know honestly that theme um emerged there was uh, there was a time when i was um when i was 18 and we'd read things full apart the first time we'd actually read a black author in, in as a state work at school um in class and what was funny that we read a part where they spoke about um a lot of the traditional beliefs that, that uh, Ogongo, which is the main character, and, and his community uh, partook in, and he sacrificed his, his uh, adoptive son um, in the book. And many of my, the people in my class saw that as a very capricious sort of thing, along with the ritual killings of, of, of twins and that sort of thing. And what was ironic was then one of my teachers then said, well, it's funny that many of you in this class are very Christian, and you would look at someone like Abraham as having had great faith, for then deciding to um, sacrifice Isaac because the Lord had ordained it necessary to do it. Um, but yet when Ogonko does it because the, 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 the gods have told him to do that, that's seen as, as barbaric or nonsensical. But none of you have uh, proof for your gods, so who uh, is fooling who here? So that was an interesting question for me to share in class um, around just, you know, why is it that we view one as irrational, uh, but when the other equally does not have proof um, in the very material sense, um, why is that one seen as, as, as rational um, and morally superior? Um, and that is, that, um, 
really has, has opened up a lot of questions for me um, around, you know, how we view uh, uh, different belief systems and who we pray to and what that means um, for each other. And, I mean, what, again, for me, uh, at least an important difference within, within my section is that I'm not, I don't, I'm not interested in, in moralizing or proving a particular point necessarily, um, whereas I think with my nonfiction, I'm much more direct to you know to say this is what I believe and this is what you should believe, um, which is a very different um, sort of stance. And I guess I'm, I'm more interested with my fiction to ask questions and get you to think about something, as opposed to sort of you know force feeding, uh, you know, and there's, a, there's an answer that that should be given uh, will come out from the book. And do that very well, you did. If you're just tuning in, uh, it's a daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. We're just going to the last portion of the show. We're speaking to Pana- uh, Panasha Chigumadzi, author, about her new book, Sweet Medicine, that you can get in all major bookstores right now. Panashi, I just want to take a bit of a step back from the book right now and ask mm-hmm. about what transpired a bit earlier in the year. So we were especially yeah. talking about the, the Ruth First um, yeah, uh, lecture yeah. that you gave a couple of months ago. Um you know, we were there uh, as, you know, as sort of members of the show, and you you gave your you know excellent speech. And 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 during the Q and A right after, there was a portion where you mentioned you were not interested in in having white people as friends. And there was a whole <laughs> sort of backlash on Twitter and everywhere. And and I'm curious yeah. about that backlash. Do you re- do you regret saying that? Is that something that affected your career in certain ways? I'm just curious about what actually went on behind the scenes after that. Oh, I think it's curious that, that in everything that I said, which I think is far more important uh, than the question of who my friends are, mm. um, everything else was sort of forgotten, um, and that was something that was that was more interesting or more important for people to pick up on. I think that's an indictment of, of our society where we are right now, um, particularly right now in the context of the, the, the process that we're seeing that started at the beginning of the year when we started with very existential questions about, um, you know, the, the legacy of, of colonialism and apartheid mm. through uh, Road Not Far, and now it's been connected to the very sort of bread and butter issues of um, how we are financially excluded from, a, from an economic perspective. Um, and those are the sort of issues that were raised. And yet the question of whether I want to be friends is, is the thing that sucks to people, sucks top of mind to people. Um, I find that to be very interesting. I think the point that I was trying to get across was just to say that we need to understand that we're not going to to um, fix the issues uh, that are outstanding from our post-apartheid legacy or apartheid legacy through sort of a kumbaya um, approach where we're interested in, in uh, you know, how can we understand each other better and that sort of thing. We need to speak about structural issues. We need to speak about structural inequality. Uh, we need to speak about the issue of land, for example, something that we haven't spoken about um, or keeps on being sort of seen as a fringe radical agenda, um, as, where it is something that really forms the basis of structural poverty um, for black people, and particularly black women in South Africa. Um, you know, so, for example, I think that you know we, we've gotten past the point where we are interested in how well, let's say, a white person can speak Zulu. We're interested in the fact that socioeconomic institutions are in the majority owned by white South Africans who own, according to the Department of Trade and Industries report, 97% of the economy, um, and black people own 3%. And therefore, it makes sense that the language of business will be um, English. That's, that's what we should be concerned about, as opposed to the symptoms 
of, of, of racism. We need to talk about the structural racism. That's what I was trying to get across. So for me, again, it, it speaks to just where we are in the country that we're so concerned about sort of a politics of reconciliation and, and sort of plastering over things as opposed to speaking to the basis of our apartness, which is a very um, material one. I think as well for our listeners, anyone who hasn't read Panache's Ruth's first lecture should actually go check it out on... It's on the Vitz journal, Journalism website, isn't it, Panache? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it is. Panache, I just want to touch... So some of us, we were eagerly awaiting the, your book launch, I think, at the end of October. But <laughs> just before it came out, you know, we got an email and sort of... This was your, your explanation for the book launch being delayed. And this is just a sort of fragment of what you said. You said, many of us in academia theorize about revolution. And here it is unfolding before our eyes as we witness one of the most important uprisings in post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, for that reason, I am very proud to be part of this generation of youth. What a time to be alive. Now, you've been involved at sort of in VITS, at the, uh, the Fees Must Fall campaign. You've also had connections to, you know, the Roads Must Fall um, issues in the UCT and the other student movements across the country. But I'm interested, how does it affect you sort of being in the, in the center of this, you know, in, as somebody in the process of this movement as a scholar and an artist you know has it yeah. has uh-huh. do you think about what impact it's having on you as a as a writer and an artist well I, i'm not the kind of person who's able to do sort of um up to minute updates and that sort of thing like for a good month we actually didn't publish anything on vanguard because there was so much that was happening around us and we thought it was important to be involved um it's the kind of thing we, we again we theorize I um, mean, here it was happening, and you know, you know, it it, it calls for us. Well, we felt like it was it was unethical not to 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 play our part. And play our part doesn't mean that you need to be uh, taking a leadership role. Um, but you know, to play your part in being um, where it was required, whether it means you need to be behind the scenes, sort of preparing food, or you need to be cleaning the floors, or you need to go and barricade uh, gates, as we did. But it was important that, that we did this um, as an ethical part. And I remember at some point, um, you know, it, it, it really is interesting, again, for, for theorizing these things, and it happens, um, it, it's definitely been a very intense period and one that um, made us question a lot about ourselves and particularly, again, our positionality as middle-class black South Africans with a stake in the status quo. And, you know, whether that's been in, for example, when we're saying, well, we want to protest, continue protesting for the end of outsourcing, but we've got exams, for example. Um, You start asking what sacrifices are you willing to take um, for this thing that you continue to call for, but now it's right in front of you. What what are you willing to do? When is it inconvenient? And I think that's the thing that we keep learning, that, you know, protest and revolution is a very inconvenient thing. You might have to cancel a book launch. You might have to, uh, you know, cancel going to gym or whatever it is. All kinds of things need to need to happen. But it's very important that that you understand that this is a bigger process is bigger than yourself. So it's forced a lot of um, introspection. Um, and I think one of the, the the sort of most defining moments for me was mm. on one of the evenings when um, we weren't really sure what was going to happen in mm-hmm. terms of just what our project action was. And We'd gone to the point where we had to, particularly myself and, and my partner, Vanguard Tato, mm. we said we're allowing ourselves to, to be led. Um, and I almost wanted to pull out because I just felt too vulnerable and I wasn't sure what was going to happen mm. um, because of a small group of us left. And he said to me, well, okay, if we don't come back, we'll go back to campus. 
let's just make sure that we are going to shut down the operations of Vanguard right now because it's no longer ethical for us to continue if we are to leave right now. Um, and that was a particularly important moment for me because, again, it's the importance of taking responsibility for what you write and say. Um, and now something was happening. It was important for us to continue and sort of ride out um, the moment. I mean, I hear you, and I'm, I think I was just, when I saw the email about the book launch being cancelled and the tone you took with it, I think I couldn't help but think behind that there must have been a great compromise to say, you know what, we have to be a part of this. So, yeah. you know, a big credit to you for that. Well, you shouldn't, because the, the, the issue is that, I mean, that it, it, that's the thing, and that's what this, this, this whole moment has also revealed to many of us. It speaks to how complicit and how much we benefit from the status quo that Status quo benefits me in the sense that mm. you know I can get published, I can I can get I can make money off of a book, such that it becomes inconvenient for me when people are, are fighting for things as basic as being able to afford their education, or for example, uh, fight for uh, humane working conditions. So then we need to then start asking questions of ourselves around just you know what what is what kind of sacrifices and how much do we really want this revolution that we all like to talk about. And Panasha, we're going to have to let you go, but just one final question. You always seem to be working on a big project, whether it's Vanguard or something else. What is next? What's next on the projects? Whatever makes me money. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Panasha, unfortunately, that's, that's all the time we have. Clearly, we could have done an hour, so we'll make sure to have you in the studio next time. Okay, thank Perfect. you so much for having me. Perfect. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have to today. Please make sure to download the podcast, share it far and wide, and you'll see us same time, same place, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Daily Maverick Show, cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., on cliffcentral.com.